Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest. Roger Holtzberg to the show. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to have you on the show because I was telling you off air that we really haven't dived into the Millennium Celebration at Walt Disney World. And that was one of those key things, that key memory I had when I was younger. It was just one of the most exciting times for me personally at Walt Disney World. And so I'm so glad we could talk to you today because um, one of the first things I thought we'd, we'd discuss about that key celebration is one of the things that's still there today, which which is Leave a Legacy. And and for those who do not know what Leave a Legacy is, there are some stone structures out in the front of Spaceship Earth as you enter Epcot. And these are kind of like the, as you'd say, a footprint of individuals who walked through Epcot and were there for the millennial celebration. And, and it was such a unique idea. And I think a lot of people thought it was just as unique as the fact that you guys have the bricks out front of Magic Kingdom. And a lot of people have their names on it. So this was a new experience to bring that to Epcot. So was that the initial idea to do something similar to the bricks, but make it even more personal? Exactly. So yes, the Millennium Leave a Legacy was one of my projects for the Millennium Celebration. And we wanted to come up with something that would take the idea of bricks, you know, and leaving leaving your personal imprint on a Disney theme park to a next level. And it absolutely has done that for me. Um, you know, when we did, we did it as a family as well. So, and, and it's, you know, it is a moment in time where we transitioned into this century, but I can tell you, you know, you, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. I know, I know we like Disney secrets and we didn't advertise it at the time and it isn't advertised now, but you can do rubbings on the metal sculptures um, so if you bring a piece of paper and a pencil and you do a rubbing, you get the images of what your family was like in that moment. And it's always a very emotional moment for me because one of my family members is no longer with us. Um, and but her image, it's my stepmom, you know, is there for eternity with our family at the threshold of Epcot and Yes, it was the idea was to make it a personal experience that would live on at the threshold of Epcot. And then there was another addition to that, the Millennium Village. And I never got to see this. I don't know why, but we never had it on our home videotapes. I don't really recall it. But would you like to describe what the Millennium Village was and, and also the dedication ceremony with uh, Maya Angelou? Sure. Um, but, I, I, you know, so you touched on something very important, though, when you said you always thought that's what Epcot was about. And Epcot 
not as it was originally conceived as a community of tomorrow by Walt Disney, but as it was built and launched years later, became a fusion of the what was called Future World, which still is, on the front end of the park, and World Showcase. And the idea of Epcot was that technology had the potential to bring the world, the cultures of the world together. So as you say, you know, the cultures of the world are together in, you know, what we might call a colorblind world at the threshold of Epcot on the Millennium Legacy sculpture. And it is, you know, it those etched, those pictures were enabled to be done for a certain period of time because as you well know, Disney celebrations last for a limited period of time. And those of us who were able to participate, we are there at that threshold. Millennium Village in, is one of my favorite projects. And I am literally, as we're talking, looking at um, a paper card fold up of Millennium Village. And on it, it's it's a you know, it's a keepsake that we made as a team. Um, and the, the Maya Angelou uh, dedication quote is on the front of it. And I'm going to read it, that quote to you in a second. But Millennium Village was conceived of as a world without borders, where the gifts of the country of those of, of the countries in the world were being presented by students, young people who lived in those countries. You know, we had at Millennium Village, Saudi Arabia and Israel in a prototypical world without borders, living side by side with young people from those countries sharing their gifts to the world. Um, the amazing thing about that is that we did it. The thing that makes me sad even today is we probably could not do it in today's post 9-11 world. Um, but it was a moment in time and it was a thrilling place to experience. And as you mentioned, it was dedicated by Maya Angelou in an adaptation of one of her poems. And the quote, which I will read, uh, which was because I'm looking at the plaque right now. It was dedicated on September 30th, 1999. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unlike. Um, and that was her dedication quote from the poem that she'd written for Millennium Village. There's another story that you were actually with Roy Disney himself during the uh, 9-11, I think on 9-11, or was it around that time or after he returned to the parks after 9-11? Well, so let me, let, yes, but we have to fast forward a few years. So let's transition from the Millennium Celebration to the 100 Years of Magic Celebration. Um, the Millennium Celebration was very successful, and it's interesting, in the run-up to the Millennium, a lot of countries and organizations said, we're going to do a really big deal for the Millennium. The Walt Disney Company and Walt Disney Imagineering and Walt Disney World in particular really stepped up to the plate, and in my opinion, between Millennium Village and the, the Legacy Sculpture Garden and the Tapestry of Dreams Parade did it in an incredible way. Um, it was, it kind of took the, we also launched in, a, in an amazing way, you know, Disney pin trading. 
during the part of that and the interactive magic moment pins, which I had the opportunity to contribute uh, to the invention patent on myself and another Imagineer, Kyle Poor, um, invented the magic moment technology. Um, and it was, it ratcheted up the Disney celebrations to a whole new level. The next celebration that was concepted for Walt Disney World was the 100 Years of Magic celebration. And we literally pulled back together our Millennium Celebration senior team. Um, and I had been promoted by then, so I was the creative executive over the entire 100 Years of Magic celebration. And it was the centennial of Walt's birth. The cornerstone attraction was called One Man's Dream. And this celebration was based out of the Disney MGM Studios. At the time, they were called the Disney MGM Studios. We um, did a new icon, which was a Sorcerer Mickey hat um, at 200 feet. Uh, and we did an attraction called One Man's Dream, which was an interactive walk through the 10 decades since Walt Disney's birth. What was interesting uh, to develop was the idea of what we called connection cards, which told the stories of the parts of the entertainment industry that Walt Disney transformed during the course of his lifetime and after and continued to transform after his passing. And the connection cards told the moment where the concept was born in his imagination, the moment it was first realized, the moment it peaked during his lifetime, and then how that part of entertainment was adapted, transformed, continued, or retired after Walt passed. One of the things that early on we decided we wanted to put on stage for the very first time was the Roy Disney story. So Walt Disney was a creative visionary um, who was bankrupt for the first time in his life in his early 20s. Walt Disney would not have existed without his big brother, Roy. Roy Disney was every bit the business visionary that Walt was the creative visionary. And the two of them made an unstoppable team. Um, Roy O. Disney, who was Walt's brother, uh, was the much less uh, public you know, showman of the two. And consequently, his story had never really been on stage, certainly not in a Disney theme park before. We wanted to put that story on stage, and I was passionate about it because I actually began my career at the Walt Disney Company in consumer products. And the consumer product, consumer products as an industry, was an industry that Royo Disney invented. Um, the you know the idea of uh, commercializing uh, film and motion picture products out in the dimensional world didn't exist before as an industry before Roy Disney invented that. Um, it happened uh, when a friend of Roy Disney's uh, was, was losing the Lionel Train Company because they just weren't selling well. And, this, and his friend was afraid that if he didn't have a reasonable return over this, Chris, this particular Christmas holiday, 
his company would go bankrupt. And Roy said, you know what? What if we gave you the rights to make a Mickey and Minnie push car, um, you know, as an engine for the Lionel trains? And he granted those rights. And that Christmas, the Lionel train company had a rebirth and the company su survived and is still alive and well today. And Roy Disney went, wow, there is a value to these products. So the Roy Disney uh, multiple stories, Roy O. Disney multiple stories were threaded through via connection cards in the One Man's Dream attraction, which has just reopened. Um, so yes, I said previously that Disney celebrations only last for a certain period of time. The One Man's Dream attraction, you know, being the cornerstone of the story of how Walt Disney's creative legacy was born into the theme parks around the world um, was a very popular attraction. I'm super proud of it. I, you know, I was when we built it um, and it stayed exactly as it was when we opened it for the 100 Years of Magic celebration until about three years ago. And then it was closed for a Pixar attraction that reopened there. And then another version of it was just reopened again, um, which I love. Um, so it lives on even now, uh, 17 years later. So, so, it, so the approval process was uh, interesting um, on the project because it involved stories from the family that had not been told before. Uh, in the documentary, the new documentary film, for the first time, the family allowed us to talk about Walt Disney's breakdowns. Um, you know, uh, and for the first time, we were putting Roy Disney's uh, story on stage. And Marty Sklar, who was my boss and the creative executive over the project at the time, said, you know, Raj, we can approve all of the Imagineering stuff through me and Imagineering, but Roy E. Disney, Roy O's son, is going to have to approve the stuff about his dad. So on uh, early in September on 9-11 or late August, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, we had the approval walkthrough with Roy E. Disney. Uh, and we had, he and I had had a good relationship up to that point, but he needed to really walk through the attraction. And it was a fascinating walkthrough um, to, you know, to really walk through the connection cards that were principally about his dad. And we started in the 30s with the invention of co consumer products. And he told me, basically, the consumer products R&D lab for the Walt Disney Company when that industry was born was the Roy Disney Garage. Right? Um, Roy O would bring home from the studio, you know, products that were being proposed to the company to develop as consumer products. And he'd say to his son, who was young in those days, hey, bring over your friends this Saturday and take this stuff out into the backyard and see if you like it. See if you can break it. See if you can make it be, you know, one of your favorite toys. Tell me what you think of it. And Roy E and his friends 
became basically the, you know, the, the test group for the early consumer products for the Walt Disney Company. It's a, a fun story. And he recounted some of that as we were doing the walkthrough of the attraction. And he was mic'd, I was mic'd, there were a couple of cameras there. Um, and we got around the corner to the 50s and the office in the, I'm sorry, the 1960s. Um, and in the 1960s, the principal uh, set piece in the One Man's Dream attraction was Walt Disney's office as it was the last day that he worked in it. Uh, that office had been at Disneyland in the pre-show to Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln prior to, but it had been in a different orientation. And I had seen it when I was a kid actually at Disneyland, and I knew that orientation, but I rotated the office uh, 30 degrees counterclockwise so that the wall that we could see as we were coming around the corner, which had never been seen before on stage in a Disney park, was the master planning wall, which had on it the drawings and the master planning sketches of the layout of Walt Disney World. This, when we first with uh, Dave Smith took those drawings out of archives where they had been for multiple decades, the hairs on our arms and probably other, every other part of our body stood on end because these drawings came out, we laid them out on a table, and these were drawings that had been concepted, you know, in the, in the months and weeks leading up to Walt Disney's death. We laid them out and then we took out an actual map of Central Florida and Walt Disney World. And almost to the square mile, every place where a backstage road, where an interstate had been laid out, where a major transportation hub had been sketched in was exactly where Walt Disney had concepted it multiple, multiple, uh, 50 years prior to. Those roads and bricks and mortar places ended up being built exactly where they began in his imagination before he died. It was astounding. We talked about that for a minute, Roy and I did, and then he did something which really surprised me. He said, look at that sofa. This, there was a sofa underneath that uh, master planning board. He said, I said, yeah. He said, that's the sofa I used to have to sit in and get notes from walls, right? And he said, look at the legs on that sofa. And I said, yeah. He says, they look short to you, don't they? And I said, yeah, they kind of do. He said, I always wondered that if Walt had had them cut down. And I said, why would he have them cut down? And he said, well, Walt wasn't that tall, but when he was angry and he was reading you the riot act, it always felt like he was a giant. And when I was there getting my notes, if he was mad at me and he was standing over me and he was wagging his finger at me, he seemed like he was huge. I think he might've had the legs on that sofa cut down deliberately, right? It was a, it was a funny moment, right? So we got through the decade of the 60s and the decade of the 70s in One Man's Dream, the principal set piece was the opening dedication of Walt Disney World. And it was the 
Walt Disney World was dedicated by Roy O. Disney, who, who, it's another big story, um, who was arguing with his brother Walt on Walt's deathbed about a deathbed promise that, and this is the story as I got it from Roy E. Disney. Um, he said he's never seen his dad. His dad never forgave himself for not granting Walt his deathbed promise. And Walt's deathbed promise was that he would, that his brother would build Epcot before he would build Walt Disney World. And Roy would not grant his brother that promise. And for a number of years, I, I didn't understand that. And I had a, an older friend of mine explain it to me. He said, you know, Roger, those guys came from an era where a deathbed promise was sealed in blood, basically, between two brothers from that era. He said, the amazing thing about Roy Disney is that he understood the only thing worse than not granting a brother a deathbed promise was granting that promise and then not delivering on it. And he and Roy Disney was enough of a visionary to know that the only person who could build Walt Disney's version of Epcot was Walt Disney and that he would fail if he tried to build Walt Disney's version of an experimental community of tomorrow and get that funded by American industry. Walt Disney was probably the only human being on earth who could have gotten that done. So his ver his promise was that he would open Disney World, but he would open it with the Magic Kingdom first. Roy O. Disney had wanted to retire around that period of time, but he committed himself to opening Disney World. And he literally worked himself to death building his brother's dream. He died four months after Disney World opened. So I'm in this, you know, on camera, mic'd, videotaped walkthrough with Roy E. Disney. And we walk into the 70s and the decade of the 70s in one man's dream. And the background is a graphic of the people who were behind Roy Disney during the dedication speech. Um, and the, in the foreground is a full-sized, life-sized cutout of Roy Disney dedicating Disney World. And his son walks up to a full-sized cutout of his dad. And there was a sound dome. And he triggers the sound dome. And, in, and he hears the audio, which says, par I'm paraphrasing, I may not get it word for word. It says, when my brother Walt died, we didn't know what we would do. We didn't know if we could go forward. But we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We decided we would move forward with this initiative. And today I'm dedicating this place in my brother's name. We're calling it Walt Disney World. And sorry, it's a, it's an emotional memory. Um, Roy Disney at that point does what a seasoned professional would do in that moment. He unclipped his microphone, took off the battery pack, laid it down on the ground, walked over to a railing, which was in the next decade and started crying. Um, 
a couple of the marketing guys who were on this walkthrough with us start pushing me like, go do something. And I'm like, in my head, I'm going, what do you do to a 70? What do you do for a 72 year old Roy Disney who has just broken down hearing his dad's voice? And I walked over to him and I realized, I think what had just happened. And I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, Roy, you never heard your dad say that, did you? And he looked at me and he said, no, my dad and his brother, Walt, were two of the most recorded men on planet Earth. Where did you get that audio from? And don't tell me you had a sound alike record that line, right? Because I'm going to be really mad if you used a sound alike of my dad. And I said, no, 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 we didn't. But, you know, your dad's um, your dad's voice was not really strong during the actual educa- dedication. He said, yeah, I know I was there. And he pointed at the graphic behind the wall. He said, see that shape right there behind my dad's shoulder? That's me. Right. Um, it was it was a, it was soft focus because it was in the background picture. Right. And he said. Uh, And my dad had a really bad cold during the dedication. So I knew that that wasn't his voice that you used. I said, we, you, we found audio from the dedication that your dad had done about five days earlier for the Orlando symphony. And we edited a couple of lines out of the Orlando symphony dedication and used them for this. And he said, yeah, that was a good idea. I wasn't at the dedication to the Orlando symphony, but I heard that it went well. And I said, so is it okay? (laughs) And he said, yeah, it's okay. In fact, it's really good. And then he said, then he said something which made me laugh. We had, so I told you about these connection cards. They were these teardrop shaped light boxes. And the last connection card about his dad's story and Walt Disney World had a beautiful picture of Royal Disney with his hard hat on, on the construction site. It was a headshot. He said, that connection card with my dad, um, can, can you guys make one of those? I'd like to have one in my office. Right. And I said, sure. When do you want it? And he said, would next week be too soon? And I said, nope, we will bring it in and install it ourselves. And the following week we got to go to Roy's office, which was in the hat at the animation building at the studios at the time and put it up on his wall. So um, that was a just before 9-11, you know, walk through approval um, of one man's dream that we did with Roy E. Disney. It's such a great tribute and I'm so glad they kept it there for so long and I'm glad it's I'm glad it's still there. I think it deserves to to be yeah, there. It's been brought back and updated, and it's great. I love the fact that I did it. Um, I'll, uh, that I got to do it. Um, yeah, super exciting. So the do we have a moment? Because there was another giant moment that happened in that attraction, which was the morning of 9-11. So it was the morning of 9-11, and we were actually installing artifacts in Walt Disney's office. And a security guard named Stan, um, I will never forget his name, came and said, did you hear a plane crashed into one of the towers? the, you know, the, the, the trade center towers in New York. And I said, what kind of plane? And he said, they think it was like a private Cessna or something like that. Remember in the first moments, it was thought to be a small private plane. And I said, boy, it's gotta be on CNN. Um, is there a TV around here? And he said, 
there's a TV in the cast room and the, uh, you know, the, there's, there was a door in the one man's dream attraction that led into a cast break room for the walk around characters. And I said, I, I said to him, I'm not kidding. Am I allowed to go in there? And he looked down at my ID badge and said, I, I, I think you probably know if you're a director level or above employee, you have what's called a gold stripe on your ID badge. He said, you got a, you got a, you got a gold stripe on your badge. I think you're allowed to go anywhere. <laughs> and I walked through the door and there was a short wall as you, as the door opened, um, that, that was made like a little, uh, you know, entryway into the room. And as I rounded the wall, there was a sofa and the sofa was facing a TV and I couldn't see the TV from the wall at first, as I walked into the room on the back of the sofa was Ariel with her tail off, um, sitting on the other arm of the sofa was Mickey Mouse with his head off. Um, and she, so Mickey was a she and Ariel and their two character handlers who were standing behind them were all staring at something in shock. And as I rounded the corner, you know, of this little wall, this little entryway wall and turned and looked to my right at the television, the second plane had just hit the second tower and both towers were burning. <laughs> Sorry. I had, you know, I, I actually, I mean, I was a vice president at the Walt Disney Company, right? I had never seen um, Mickey Mouse without a head on, right? I had never seen, I, I, and I don't know that anybody had ever seen a Mickey um, who had cried their black eyeshadow, which goes around the eyes to blunt the eyes into the head down their face, right? Um, and Mickey's character handler was looking at her watch and looking at me and looking at the TV. And it finally clicked for me. This person had to go on stage. Like they were scheduled to go on stage. Right. And, you know, so I was, how old was I? Nine eleven. I guess I was in my mid forties. Right. And they're looking at me like, uh, you know, you're the character handler is looking at me like you're the grown up in the room. Do something. Right. And so I have to, and she's looking at me like without words, there was no verbal communication, but she's looking at her watch and looking at the door that goes out into the Disney MGM studios. Like I, this kid's got to go on stage. Right. And so I actually walked over to the TV and I turned off the volume and I stood between the TV and Mickey and said, and looked in her eyes and said, the world is going to be okay. And you got to go on stage. So we're going to redo your makeup and then we're going to put you back in your costume and you're going to go out on stage. Are you okay with that? And she kind of, I mean, 
I knew she was in shock, right? She nodded her head, yes, I'm, and said, yeah, I'm okay with that. And her character handler redid her makeup. And we put Mickey's head back on. And Mickey went back out on stage through the stage door at the back of the room. Um, not long after that, the security team came in um, with walkie-talkies lit up and they came to any of us who were executives and said, we're evacuating the theme parks at Walt Disney World. The, um, what happened very early on, on the day of 9-11, is they figured out which car was Mohammed Atta's car in Boston. And in the trunk of that car, apparently, was a map that had different sets of targets circled. There was New York and the World Trade Centers. There was Washington, D.C. with the, the Pentagon and the White House. And there was Disney World. Um, the, there was an article published in the Orlando Sentinel about, about uh, a couple of men who had, three weeks after 9-11, who had tried to rent high-capacity crop dusters for cash about six months earlier, if you remember the history, all of the 9-11 hijackers trained to fly at flight simulators in Orlando. They were all very familiar with Orlando. And in retrospect, a you know, month out of 9-11 when the article got published in the Orlando Sentinel, we all wondered what 18, however, 16,000 gallons worth of God knows what in a couple of high capacity crop dusters would have done to the Magic Kingdom that morning. I had that had those guys been able to rent those planes. But fortunately, the leasing agent at the crop dusting rental company didn't rent those planes for cash. Um, so but on the morning of 9-11, um, Mickey Mouse went back out on stage. And we then evacuated first all of our employees from backstage, and then we went into the parks and we evacuated guests from those theme parks. Nobody could travel out of Orlando or out of the resort for a number of days, as I'm sure you remember. I mean, you know, air traffic in the US was at a standstill. Um, that Friday, it was decided that the parks would reopen and at the moment of impact in the sort of core areas at each of the parks um, there would be a moment of silence and I because we were basing the 100 years of magic celebration out of the Disney MGM studios uh, we had that moment there um, in that park and when I went out that morning we all held hands guests and uh, cast members and characters you know and the and there was a moment of silence which was announced over the speakers two people to my right um, was Mickey Mouse and of course you know Mickey as a character doesn't talk in the park and certainly at that moment none of us were talking um, but I looked over and looked into the eyes of this Mickey and I'm still not sure to this day whether she was mad at me that I'd made her go back out on stage 
um, on the morning of 9-11 or whether she was glad, but that look and those eyes and, uh, you know, are moments that I will never forget from that morning. How long did it take to kind of rebuild the moving forward, at least with other projects? Because I can only imagine everybody felt very helpless and and didn't know what to do. You know, should we make another attraction? You know, how how do we go on? So what was what was the push and drive that maybe suddenly came maybe for you or, or your team? Well, it's inter- it's an interesting question. So we were a, within a month of opening because, as you know, Disney celebrations open three months before the year begins. Right. Um, the pre-opening. We were within a month of of opening that celebration and. Uh, and significant amounts of commercial advertising, you know, all kinds of things had been bought. A, an immediate triage meeting, a series of meetings, I think that happened every day for a week to reconcept what would the 100 Years of Magic celebration become. And the, you know, my recollection is that the real brilliance of reconceiving in real time how to how to redefine uh reinvigorate reconcept and then deliver a new version of the hundred years of magic celebration was led by a visionary marketing leader named linda warren um who was you know who i think had conceived this celebration and i remember linda saying there's going to be no air travel. We are going to retool the way we think about this celebration. There's going to be no air travel for a period of time. So, but Americans are going to need a good story to tell and a safe place to, to get a break <laughs> um, come this holiday season. And so let's, let's, open the first phase of the 100 Years of Magic celebration for drive-to traffic in the Southeast United States. You know, let's, let's, let's think about it for, and, and retool, retool it for our drive-to traffic in that region of the country. And then soon domestic travel is gonna come back and be okay and be safe. And our domestic, you know, we're all going to need a safe place to bring our families, right? And let's make that the messaging and let's make this the celebration where America is okay, right? And Linda was just brilliant in the way she really thought and worked this through. And that was one of the things that made, well, not one of the things, probably the thing that then made the 100 Years of Magic celebration, the most successful celebration in the, at least at its time, in the history of Walt Disney World. Um, it certainly wasn't, that, that was not my uh, area of expertise or strong suit, but, you know, Linda had also been the marketing lead on the Millennium Celebration and was just a visionary in, in creating, defining marketing and uh, then making successful, you know, Disney celebrations. But moving forward from this, 
you know, you've worked on several projects since then. And, and I'd love for you to talk about what, what you're currently working on with your company, because I, I think it's just very commendable, you know? Um, the Yeah, one of the things that then followed 9-11 was a severe decline in the international theme park travel business, um, you know, for a period of time. And the company under the leadership of the, the, the parks and resorts division of the Walt Disney Company under the leadership of Paul Pressler at the time, you know, Paul specifically took a beat of time and said, let's rethink about how we sell and promote and develop our, you know, our theme park initiatives. And let's start a new division of the company called Walt Disney Parks and Resorts Online. And he recruited me out of Walt Disney Imagineering uh, to be the creative director and the creative vice president and build the Imagineering online part of the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts online segment. Um, and it was an honor to get to do that, to build that whole team from the ground up. Um, and we did, we invented at the time what we called our connected attractions. We did a product called Virtual Magic Kingdom, um, which I had actually first concepted back in the 1990s at Disney Interactive as a virtual Disneyland that brought together vir a virtual theme park environment with a real bricks and mortar theme park environment. And there was a time where we had five plus million kids in Virtual Magic Kingdom. And after it closed, because it was a part of the Disneyland's 50th celebration, and it ran for a large number of years, again, much longer than it was ever supposed to. It's interesting, the fans, when it was closed down, got together and built their own version of it, and it's still alive and well and running. Um, but, you know, Virtual Magic Kingdom, the Buzz Lightyear connected attraction, the Tower of Terror, you know, connected attraction, um, Expedition Everest, those were all projects we did out of the Parks and Resorts Online uh, Advanced Projects Group. Um, and come to 2004, on the eve of my 50th birthday, I heard the three words that one in two American men and one in three American women will hear during the course of their lifetime. And those three words are, you have cancer. Uh, I had lost my mom when I was really young to cancer and, um, and uh, it was a big deal in my life, right? Um, my dad was a, was a physician who kind of always wanted me to go into healthcare. My stepmom at the time was a cancer survivor. I sort of knew the day after I got diagnosed that I was going to somehow find a way to give back and transition into healthcare. Um, I was lucky. I was diagnosed at stage one. Um, I, my odds of beating the cancer were really good. Um, I pulled together a group of survivors and caregivers at Disney, and we started doing some really amazing volunteer work. We developed and built a support platform for cancer patients that helped set goals during each phase of the cancer journey, you know, through the diagnosis phase, the treatment, the healing, the well-being phase. And we called it My Bridge for Life. And we started sharing that with people 
through Livestrong.org at the time, um, Livestrong had this social component that they don't have anymore. And my aha, there, I've had a lot of aha moments on that part of the journey as well. You know, the first one was when suddenly thousands and thousands of people were using this platform. And I went, wow. And then with another group of volunteers, we adapted one of my Disney attractions, uh, Turtle Talk with Crush, um, into a sort of pediatric patient healing experience at Children's Hospital of Orange County. Um, and then we were asked to do the media, the Living With videos, for the launch of Livestrong.com. Um, and those kinds of things added up to enough, I guess, uh, you know, visibility to get me recruited to be the first creative director at the National Cancer Institute. And um, I went and did three interviews there for a job that had been posted. Um, and the chief technology officer at National Institutes of Health, you know, was, was uh, we're still very good friends, um, was essentially, inter, you know, running me through the interview process. And I finally said to him, Jonathan, it's just not in my DNA to move to Bethesda, Maryland, and become a government federal employee. I, I said, but I, I, I'm, I'm super passionate about the mission and the vision of the National Cancer Institute, our federal cancer program, and I really want to help out. This was all underneath the educational and marketing and communication part of the National Cancer Institute. Um, I said, if you can offer me a federal contract, I'll leave Disney and start a company and and give you that contract and move in halftime and build a local team on site, you know, of feds, um, because it's, it's, this isn't something I want to do for the rest of my life. And we worked that out. So I left Disney to become the first, quote unquote, consulting creative director at the National Cancer Institute, redoing cancer.gov and taking our federal program into new and social media via Facebook, Twitter, and building a media studio for so that we could actually communicate better to our American people, you know, what the gold standard of cancer research and cancer care was all about. Um, along the way, I met a visionary hematologist oncologist who brought me to his hospital, which was Children's Hospital of Orange County, and said, bring in a bunch of your Imagineers, you know, and let's do a brainstorm and let's change the way chemotherapy gets delivered to patients. You know, it's you. you and so we did. Um, and cutting to the chase, you know, the the another aha moment happened for me when uh, after this brainstorm, I was swimming that Saturday off the coast of Malibu, California. And I'm a pretty good open ocean swimmer. Uh, and I was leading a group of newbies and I had beaten them past the surf break. And I had a few minutes in the ocean before my swimmers caught up with me. And a pair of adult dolphins with two pups popped up in the water about eight feet away from me. And I went, whoa. Okay, this for me is the most healing place on earth, right? Being in the ocean on a 
impossibly clear, beautiful, beautiful day with this crystal clear blue water and adult and baby dolphins swimming around me, right? Um, hanging out to check me out, right? Even just for a couple of moments. I went, boy, if I could have been here when I was in cancer treatment, this would have healed me better. And I, another light bulb went off and went, wait a second, you used to make rides for Disney. You actually could have been here in every single way, but physically. So I went back to Leonard Sender, who was the hematologist oncologist, and I said, Lenny, let me go out to 20 pediatric families that are in treatment with their kids and let these parents and, and let's ask these parents to do a survey with their kids. And he's like, what kind of survey? And I said, one question, ask their kids if they could get their treatment anywhere in the universe. And there were absolutely no rules. What place would best heal them? What is their most special healing place? And we went out to 20 of them. And over the last three plus years, we've gone out to hundreds and probably thousands of patients and said, what is your special healing place? And never once have they come back and said, oh, the place that would heal me the best is a hospital. It turns out our special healing places are as diverse as our taste in music. And so what we are doing with Reimagine Well is building immersive healing experiences for patients while they are in chemotherapy so that they can get their treatment in the place that they believe would best heal them. And we think of this as adapting Disney's architecture of reassurance for the design in the theme parks into what we are calling an architecture of healing. Yeah, for me at this point in my career, right, to have had the extraordinary honor to get to learn the architecture of reassurance from the Marty Sklars and John Henches of the world who invented it with Walt Disney, and then to be able to adapt that into an architecture of healing for patients who are on a, just a different kind of journey, you know, um, but an unfortunate journey that way too many of us have to deal with. It is, yeah, it's an honor, you know. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I wish we could talk more because when you mentioned VMK, my ears perked up because I was one of those, I was definitely one of those players. And and there's so many other projects that you got to work on. So hopefully, it, as long as you're willing and able, uh, we'd love to have you back on the show to talk more uh, about those projects. And, and before we end, I always ask my guests the fab three questions. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Sleeping Beauty, I wound up in the hospital after seeing it. Um, so I'm not sure it was my favorite, but it was certainly my most impactful because I made my parents go get me a Prince Philip, uh, you know, costume and then promptly went out in the backyard and decided I would cut my way through the dense rose bushes with that plastic sword, that plastic helmet, and that plastic breastplate to get to the castle, right? And I wound up shredded and in the hospital. <laughs> so I guess I would say, I guess I would say Sleeping Beauty. 
And now our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Well, I'm going to give you another unusual one. So when I was nine years old, uh, I had my first mega aha Disney moment. My dad took me to the 1964 World's Fair. And one of the three Disney attractions at the 1964 World's Fair was great moments with Mr. Lincoln. When I was nine, I believed that I saw Abraham Lincoln come back to life, stand up on a stage and talk to me. And I was dumbstruck. Um, and so I, I, I believed at that moment that Abraham Lincoln could be my friend. And Walt Disney had made that happen for me. And, and then finally, our Mickey question. If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Oh, no. I can't believe I'm going to say it. I can't believe I'm going to say it. Um, I was running through in my head the three attractions that were at the 1964 World's Fair. And, of course, the iconic song that was written for one of them was It's a Small World. Also brings back the Maya Angelou line and also the theme from Epcot. You know, I mean, if the theme from Epcot is a park as a park is that through technology, we can use it in a positive way to bring the cultures of the world together, you know, and Maya Angelou's line for the dedication of the millennium celebration as we are more alike than different, my friends. And Millennium Village as a prototypical world without borders where we share our gifts that we bring to the world with each other. Um, you know, it. <laughs> I don't want to spin it all back to small world, but, you know, it is a small world and we need to find a way to, <laughs> to take it into the future in a loving, peaceful, generous, and heartfelt way. I couldn't have said it better myself, and I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk today, Roger. I know it's been a couple months we've been trying to set this up, and, and we finally got to talk today, and, and I'm so happy we did. Thank you very, very much for your time and, and uh, for leaving a legacy on, on, my, on my Disney experiences because, <laughs> you know, my family and I, we, we owe a lot to you as well, so thank you so much. You're very welcome.